Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today's podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Qualcomm. On today's show, we have Lex Sokolin, partner at Autonomous Research. He has a very interesting background that's been formed over the last 10 years, combining an interest in visual arts and new media with technology, futurism, crypto skepticism, AI alarmism, and many other isms, which we look forward to discovering in today's show. Lex, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So we'd like to start off with the basics. What did you study? What did you do after you studied? And then walk us through the sort of the early parts of your career leading up to today. Sure. So in undergrad, I studied economics, law, and politics. Uh, and I've been pretty consistent with that thread uh, over the next, over the last 10 years. Uh, but at the same time, I've always had an interest in the visual arts and spent quite a bit of time at Amherst, my college, doing theater and dance interactive media, uh, building websites in Flash and, and doing a lot of design. And so I've always had this contradiction between being creative and trying to think like an artist and at the same time uh, really engaged on the quantitative side of things. Uh, and so coming out of college, um, I ended up uh, on Wall Street. I ended up where a lot of young people in the States around the mid-2000s went. And I was lucky enough to have Lehman Brothers as my first experience. Uh, and I mean that sincerely. It was a great position. It was a strategy position inside of a, an investment management business. Um, and I worked with very smart people. But I'd say the most useful thing I took away from Lehman was its um, uh, utter collapse. Uh, or maybe one way to think about it is uh, Lehman was my first exit uh, nice. to Barclays. Uh, and so I was there for about three years. The first year, everything was great. The second year, the cracks started to show. Um, and then the third year, uh, everybody learned uh, a deep lesson about risk management. And one of those lessons for me was uh, watching very smart, experienced, seasoned people in the business um, that I looked up to make the decision of buying more Lehman stock uh, when things were looking grim. Uh, and that taught me about financial planning, uh, behavioral biases, and the types of mistakes people can make when in very stressful situations. And so uh, after Lehman, I was at Barclays for a little bit, um, but went on to a graduate program at Columbia, where not surprisingly, I did um, a degree in business, uh, an MBA, and a degree in law, so uh, a Juris Doctorate. And again, it was uh, trying to get deeper into understanding how the world works, how financial companies function, um, and how to run one. Um, and while I was doing that, the other side of my interests uh, bubbled up and I, I couldn't quite contain it. Um, and I ended up starting uh, a company simultaneously with doing uh, the dual degree. And the thing that really motivated me to start the company, which was called Nestegg Wealth, um, was that takeaway from the bankruptcy and the acquisition um, around how people invest. And by now, the story of democratizing access to wealth management, investment management products, uh, using technology is very well worn. It's 2017 and it was 2009 when I started my company. 
Um, and it was essentially a robo-advisor where we built technology that the type of firms on Wall Street used for very wealthy clients. We took that technology and made it very accessible, uh, made it easy to understand, made it self-service, um, and as a result, uh, allowed people with very small accounts to, to access high-quality asset allocation. And once you, once you get addicted to entrepreneurship, it's very hard to get away from it. Um, it's, it's a very emotional journey, and uh, that feeling of ownership really stuck with me. And it was also a place where I could apply design thinking, I could apply creativity, um, I could work again on technology, um, you know, from, from the different screens that our customers used to the data architecture and all of the pieces in between. But while doing that, I also learned, um, or, or rather, I've acquired the scar tissue that comes with uh, building a fintech startup. And that scar tissue is quite different from working in finance. It's, you know, it's not the late nights um, and working hard. It's, you know, people say you can, you can have a death by a thousand cuts, whereas I think in a startup, it's a, it's a life by a thousand cuts. You, you need constantly to be doing the wrong thing so that you know what the right thing is. And so the wrong thing that we were doing was building a direct-to-consumer business. Um, there's still lots of robo-advisors that are trying to build a brand that's direct-to-consumer, certainly Nutmeg, Betterment in the U.S., Wealthfront. Um, and we can go into why that's, that's a hard play, but for, for us, for Nestegg, we ended up pivoting to being a B2B business and working with financial institutions by uh, around 2012, 2013. And that means private labeling the software to... Uh, broker-dealers, to wealth managers, to asset managers, and that got the interest of a number of different types of companies, media companies, investment companies, tech companies. Long story short, we, we did a, a merger with a wealth management platform um, and really went 100% all in on uh, the private label play, uh, and it really worked. Uh, companies called now Advisor Engine raised about $25 million from uh, an asset manager called Wisdom Tree. Um, I was the chief operating officer there and the head of product for uh, All In. The entire journey was about six, seven years. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was an amazing experience. And it's, it's nice to be right um, about fintech theme. And over the last couple of years, I started to get interested again in uh, emerging technology and uh, the early stage, the weird stuff, what's happening on the edge. Um, and so things like blockchain and AI, um, cryptocurrencies and virtual reality started being, th being things I was interested in and themes I started talking about at conferences and in the media. Um, and having gotten Advisor Engine to a place that was stable, um, I ended up uh, transitioning to a company called Autonomous Research. Uh, Autonomous Research is uh, an equity research shop focused only on financial services companies, so asset managers, banks, uh, insurers, um, and I joined to, to build the fintech practice there, covering the themes um, that I had just mentioned. And the wonderful thing in my position now is that um, I can really get to the edge and figure out what does this do? Uh, what does this do to financial services incumbents? Uh, what does this do for startups? How can people build things around it? Um, and then what does this do for tech companies? How does that collide with um, the rest of the industry uh, while also having access to um, all the different players in the ecosystem? So it's been a, an amazing journey and I'm lucky to have gotten to where I am. Well, that's an amazing story and um, lots to dig into there. So 
maybe let's jump into some of the work that you did within your firm, the, the one you started, and what that has as a larger implication towards robo-advisory and the current state of it and where it needs to be for the future. So right now, if I understand it, in your view, robo-advisors are really just kind of replicating what humans are doing. Is that a fair statement? That's exactly right. Um, there have been, I'd say, about four waves of uh, robo-advisors to date. Um, the first one is really taking what financial advisors or private bankers uh, or agents, however different countries call them, do, um, and automating their approach top-down. So saying, if this, then that. Let's figure out the rules and, and put it into software. Um, and then the, the second wave of digital wealth was what my company had done, Advisor Engine, which is to say, how do we combine this with the human approach? Uh, how do we combine this with where the clients are? Um, and the insight there is very simple. The insight is uh, people hate financial products. Um, anyone you ask, tell them to go get a new mortgage or do their financial plan uh, or get a new credit card. That is a negative utility interaction, right? When you install Instagram or Snapchat, that is a positive utility interaction. Um, it has uh, a potential to be you know, positive viral coefficient and it can scale like a tech company. It can scale in the attention economy, right? Where people uh, engage with content, they share it and um, it, it spreads on its own with finance that is really difficult to do. And the problem is that most people who build finance companies or um, fintech companies think they're going to get the attention economy, but instead what they get is a financial services business. Um, and so the answer to that is unless you're trying to chase customer acquisition and pay 500 euro or 500 pounds or $500 per customer, um, the smart strategy is to go where the customers are and the customers are in the banks. Um, and I feel like in Europe, the fintech ecosystem has done that quite well, uh, potentially learning from what happened four years or so earlier in the United States where lots of people broke on the shores of trying to build their brands. That's not to say people can't build brands. You have number 26, you have SoFi, um, you have to some extent uh, Wealthfront and Betterment, but it's a very difficult exercise. The third wave of robo-advisors was really the large firms getting in. So today it's very hard to name an asset manager or a bank that does not have a robo-advisor. Um, from JP Morgan to Goldman Sachs to UBS to Vanguard to Fidelity to Schwab, um, and the list goes on. So anyone building a robo-advisor now has to compete not with a mobile app, but with the ATM on the corner uh, or the Salesforce of 15,000 advisors that one of these incumbents has. And the fourth wave, which I think is um, getting closer to the original mission and maybe a way around it, is um, a few companies have figured out how to behave and look more like the attention economy and less like the financial services economy. And that's firms like um, Acorns and Digit and Robinhood in the United States um, and the virtual assistant and chatbot firms that you see now um, popping up in Europe. And the reason for it is that they've really removed the friction um, and replaced it with an interaction that feels much more like a game. Um, you know, so when you're trading for free on Robinhood, you're really kind of in a, in a 
gamified world where there's very little friction to interact. Uh, or if you have automatic savings that gets invested into a portfolio, you're not, you're not really doing the homework that a robo-advisor would give you. Um, so there have been all these different waves. And I think for anyone entering the business now, they really have to look around and figure out what's their competitive advantage. I'm going to generalize what you said as a lot of innovation around how people consume the, the potential product offerings. So the UX layer, the sort of how do you engage with these products? How do you interface with them? How do you organize them? But let's dig deeper into the robo board. You know, that implies more AI than it actually does have. As you said earlier, it's still very much a sort of mapping of human choices onto a UI that resembles something more robo, but isn't quite. And so as, a, as an example, you know, um, there's several European uh, robo-advisors that I won't name names, but that I've, I've looked into and researched. And the big differences between them seem to be on how to best represent risk uh, choices to consumers. But if you look at the underlying assets that they promote for different risk categories, they're pretty much very similar. And, you know, with, with all the sort of things that are going on right now at the geopolitical level globally, there's all these concerns about what is the best store of value. And as a consequence, there's a rush towards gold and other assets that have been traditionally more safe. And yet when I look at those safe options risk the ones out of tens or the two out of tens or the risks one out of five or two out of five that these companies have, they have a, a, a laughably poor sort of diversified um, low risk asset offering to their customers. And so trying to understand what your views are on the why that is and what needs to happen for that to evolve further. Sure. That makes sense. Um, and I think you're right. I think that by definition, the early robo-advisor offerings are going to be as simplified and as streamlined as possible. So you can think of them as retirement date funds with a little bit of customization on top based on a simple questionnaire. Um, and again, these are tab-down, rule-based questionnaires. I think the eureka moment is that this is essentially all of wealth management as it is today. So if you were to talk to a financial advisor at one of the large incumbent institutions, what they are doing is taking you through a 15-step paper questionnaire. They're taking that questionnaire and inputting it into advisor-facing software that they have in their office, which spits out an asset allocation that looks a whole lot like a robo-advisor asset allocation. So I think it's a fair um, it's a fair stone to throw, but I would throw that at the industry as a whole, whereas robo-advice is really just a, distrib a new distribution mechanism, a new UI um, on top of that existing product. Um, if you look at the actual asset allocation, the there's best practice, but there are many different types of answers that get you essentially to the same result, right? So when you think about volatilities and risk tolerances and expected returns, they get you to... Um, essentially the same answer from a long-term perspective, uh, even though uh, the underlying holdings might be different. So that's why we see robo-advisors across the world that say, um, we're a social impact robo-advisor, or we only have these types of motifs, um, or you know, we don't believe in active management, we're entirely passive, we're the lowest cost, right? All these different offerings, I feel like, 
Um, there can be a religious debate about active versus passive. There can be a debate about, do you want to have a barbell investing strategy, core satellite investing strategy, uh, or if you want to just be in Vanguard funds. Um, and I think that you need all of these things and they fit with different types of customers that believe different things. But how do you, how do you productize that? Because you, you've got two challenges going on at the same time. You've got um, the education of what risk is, and then there is how do you place risk into these different philosophies? So what, what do you think the next innovation of UI is? Not, not from the gamifying how you contribute cash, but how do you even conceptualize for people, the difference between like a, a sort of very polar asset distribution versus a, a, a more sort of distributed. Yeah. So let's assume that there are there's a set of right answers in terms of um, retail investment recommendations. And let's just assume that a fully low cost, fully diversified, entirely boring vanilla asset allocation with traditional fixed income equities, some commodities, real estate Let's just say that's one right answer. And on the other side of that, um, maybe there's another portfolio that's much more actively managed, that has more exotic products, that has you know some cryptocurrencies and some Bitcoin. Um, Hedgeable is a, is a robo-advisor um, that I like for that type of uh, approach. So let's assume both are equally correct answers because end of the day, um, it's a behavioral preference of the user rather than um, you know, a, a ground truth. Um, there are some truths in investing and that's that diversification matters. And if you're, um, you know, if you're picking stocks or you're out of alignment with your risk, those things are statistically, um, statistically proven that there are some correct ways to go about it and some wrong ways to go about it, but there are many correct ways to go about it. So the problem is back to the point of your actual users hate your product. Um, and this is after seven years of hitting my head against the wall, um, and perhaps other robo-advisor entrepreneurs disagree, but my, my thought is that you can't have a tech firm giving homework to people all the time. You just can't. Um, you can't have, here's an app, and here's 20 minutes of homework, and once you've done this homework, you're going to pay us for investment product we manufacture. That makes no sense. Um, I think end of the day, uh, most investors that would fall into the into the robo advisor camp who don't just want to trade stocks, but who want things to be taken care of for them. I think most of those people just want an app that has a smiley face that says, "Yes, you can go on vacation. Yes, you can buy the house. Yes, your kid can go to college." They want the result and not the process, right? So if you think about um, how, how people used to buy computers or how people used to buy cars, right? So, uh, no one cares what the engine looks like or how many gears it has or what the horsepower is, or, um, nobody exposes that stuff anymore. Can I push back on that for a second? Yeah. Uh, because I would argue that marketing costs and that, that hundred million budget that's typically associated with what it takes to launch a B2C product in the financial world, that hundred million is spent on educating the customer through creative means in marketing campaigns that allow them to differentiate not horsepower, but rather that this car is 2% faster, or sorry, two times faster than, than the other car. And then sort of promising that vacation faster than the competitor. And that's maybe the way it's, it's, it's hidden. It's, it's sort of 
um, hidden from the consumer in one way, the complexity of it, but it still has to be represented somehow. And, and I guess I'm, I'm curious as to if, if you assume that, that there is a cost borne by these startups from the marketing point of view, is there is the next wave one of an aggregator who basically knows all these different philosophies and assigns you as a consumer a distribution of the high-risk models, of the low-risk models, and you basically hope for that one new meta advisor to show up, which is really the one that best leverages all high-risk portfolios, doesn't care what philosophy it is, and they have, they're going to be the winner, and that's going to be Google you know, five years from now when they buy out two or three firms with different high-risk and low-risk portfolios. So um, I'll agree with the premise that it will be that it would be someone like a Google rather than someone like a Goldman. Uh, but I'll disagree with uh, it's going to look like um, an aggregator, a marketplace aggregator that um, recommends you a portfolio. And the reason is that people buy investment. So investment professional, financial professionals manufacture financial products. So the way they think about them is I have the stream of return I make in my fund, and my stream of return is better than your stream of return on a risk-adjusted basis. Mm -hmm. And that's a financial person's thinking. Um, A human person's thinking is, I should buy this for because I want my investment to go up. Or I should buy this because my smart friend bought this, and so I should buy it because they know what they're doing. Or um, there is access to this investment, and time is running out. So I'm an angel investor, and I want—I just want to put money in because in in five seconds it closes, right? And so on and so forth. So there's a variety of um, emotional reasons that people make these decisions. The 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 percentage of people who are doing the hard math is you know really low, and then. Uh, they're likely doing their math wrong, right? Because they, like you said, they don't understand risk. And that's, that, that is the job of the software to do. And so I think that the marketing piece from the robos has to be the, the ones that win are the ones that are best at selling people the thing they want. And it's an obvious, it's not an insight. It's sort of, it's, it's what it has to be. Um, so if there's, you look at the evolution of the Wealthfront website, you know, it started out as, Here's a picture of a computer with a chart on it uh, because we're selling to Silicon Valley techies. Um, then it now is a picture of it's an it's a nice illustration of a wealthy couple with a kid lying on a blanket. Right. So they used to sell you're a techie. You can invest on your phone. And now they're selling you have a family and here's a way to take care of it. Right. So I think it's um it's a more complex answer. But the. Um, the final outcome is now you get to a place where it's not websites or apps, it's conversational interfaces. And it's not a 15-question uh, paper that is multiple choice. It's a gigantic artificial intelligence that knows everything about you, right? So it has all your images. It has all your status updates. It has everything you've ever liked ever. It knows all your friends and it knows where you live and it knows how you shop. So it knows if you're a cat person or a dog person. It knows when your kid is born. It knows if you have a house or a flat, right? So the precision of that, you know, it knows if your shirt is red or blue, right? If you're, if you voted Trump or Hillary, um, and without actually knowing what you did, it can infer the entire you. Um, and that is uh, an order of magnitude greater than um, any paper questionnaire and any financial advisor conversation that you can have, human, robo, or anything. 
Um, and so, uh, in my view, what that knowledge can do is solve for the problem of homework because the virtual assistant, right? The, the scaled virtual assistant of Amazon or Cortana or, um, any smart speaker or Tesla's, um, operating system that can solve for what you need much better than you can. Um, and so I think it's only a matter of time where, um, finance is reduced to one skill, one feature of a much larger virtual assistant that, you know, hangs around us and determines how to maximize our utility. That's a great transition to sort of AR, VR and AR and how the future of our interactions, both in the, in the real and the virtual, will have an impact on the data we generate, which then train the AI to then make decisions on our behalf. Maybe taking a little bit of a sidetrack uh, on the general theme that we're, we're covering, where does that morals and ethics of this come into play such that you don't end up having products that are not necessarily ill-suited for somebody? Because like when you do the nutmeg sort of onboarding, it says, you know, actually your risk profile allows you to take more risk. Um, where do you keep on having poorer be poorer and the richer be richer on the very basis that the kinds of answers that they're going to give, the kinds of actions that they have correlate highly with a series of choices, which the machine determines are best suited for you based upon just the aggregate of the average. It's a huge danger. And the types of people necessary to solve that problem is a, is a very rare type of person to um, understand system building software building, you know, society building and, and ethics. Um, and I think it's, it's very rare. And um, what scares me is that most people um, that run organizations are fairly blind to the issue. So I'm, I'll give you an answer that's a little bit sideways to, um, to what you're saying. Maybe you can bring me back if I go too far afield. But think about it this way. So traditionally, we've had monopolies be regulated and busted by governments, right? So the idea is you have somebody that amasses real economic and political power by creating a product that nobody else can replicate, and then it prices other people out um, by going so low that nobody can compete, right? For a real-life example, look at Amazon and Whole Foods um, and uh, the stock prices of all the competitors uh, in, in that space. So monopolies, we know, are something that sovereign power should check in order to protect its citizens because the sovereign is, end of the day, elected by the citizens and it's, it's the duty to protect the interests of the weak, right? Where we are now is much more insidious, which is um, over the last 15 years, the attention economy has been the way that large tech firms and large media firms have come into power, right? So everything is free because nothing is free because you're the product, because advertisers, you know, pay for your attention. So from search to social network, to information, to newspapers, all of it is optimized around you consuming more media and more information. And so it has the perverse incentive, which has resulted in something like um, attention obesity in a way. So if you, my favorite stat about the attention economy is that we consume about nine, um, sorry, we spend about nine hours uh, a day consuming media. And in those nine hours, we consume 10 and a half hours of media. I mean, we're, we're literally stuffed fat with, with information and that, that's growing more screens and so on. 
Um, and I bring this up because when we consume that media, what we consume shapes what we think. Um, and it's to some extent willful ignorance to say, I can have this glut of information, I can make sense of it, because all our platforms are designed to get us to think certain things or to like certain things or to react to certain things. Um, and of course, there's money behind it. So I think there's a concept now of not a, mon not a monopoly, but of, a, one, of an organization that can actually shape our preferences. It can shape not just what we read, but what we think about what we read. Um, and that's by selecting the different streams. And of course, this is a theme that's come out of elections and um, is becoming more, more and more obvious now. So there's a question of ethics in that. You know, what happens when somebody designs the AI in order to maximize ad dollars or, you know, political influence that can be uh, implemented through ad dollars um, and then monopolizes not just thoughts, but real life preferences of people, how they run their lives, who they choose, what they buy, certainly, you know, what they buy through nutmeg, but much more broadly, um, how they behave in the economy. Um, there's a monopoly around setting those preferences. And I think there's a real ethical issue. And I think that uh, for, again, most folks in power, it's, it's too invisible to be scary, but it's far more powerful than you know, having a, a monopoly over manufacturing something. Mm. So I think that, you know, that's, that's a topic that interests me, but I think it's not an easy one to sort of put a final cap. We've covered it. Like, I think it's just going to be an ongoing thing. So, but if we bring it back to the AI component of that discussion, what are the parts of financial stack that you think AI is going to transform the most in the next year or two? So I look at the um, financial stack in a pretty simplified way. Front office, middle office, and back office. Um, pretty much any financial services company you can cut this way. Even if it's B2B, uh, it'll just have a lot of middle and back office. So AI is going to have a meaningful impact on each one of these. Around the front office um, is probably the most visible to the, uh, to the retail consumer. So um, the interaction that you have with a financial services firm can happen now through chatbots, uh, through natural language processing, through voice and conversational interfaces. So we'll, I think, gradually see the transition as in the broader tech economy from mobile apps to conversational skills, um, especially as we get self-driving cars and, and people are trapped inside of uh, speaking computers. Um, I think that it's fairly threatening to financial firms because again going from a place of having a customer that's captive that a human being is talking to a human being they're now moving into a place where a, a human being is inside of kind of an ai talking bubble that does everything for that person um, that's trying to maximize their utility and finance financial planning financial advice banking, payments, all of that is just a, a small sliver of a feature inside of the broader serving service offering. The second piece is um, the middle office. And I think that's where financial firms actually benefit quite a bit. And we see a lot of technologies and startups focused on that. So if you think about uh, PSD2 and APIs, once you have structured data, you can have artificial intelligence that sits on top of compliance that sits on top of payments and fraud, AMC, uh, KYC, AML. So all of the functions inside the firm that used to be batch and apply to a small part to test for the rest can now be done real time at scale 
Um, and I think that's going to make the, um, the oversight part of these firms much easier. Um, and then in the back office, um, artificial intelligence, I think, has uh, a real place in manufacturing the product, right? So if you look at things like underwriting, so lending underwriting uses data science and AI today to get to give people credit. Um, insurance underwriting, I think, is a, a huge um, area of, of growth. And <clears throat> that's because you can actually use AI for what it's intended to do, which is to um, manufacture human-like judgment um, around risks using difficult inputs like images, pictures of bikes, of cars, of um, houses and things like that. Um, and then investment management manufacturing, so making funds, making investment decisions. Um, I think that one is probably the one we're furthest away from because um, investing is a really complex problem and the data set is large and messy and just by complexity theory is almost um, beyond the scope of what today's narrow AI can do. Uh, but I think it's all across the stack. We'll see that happen. Mm. What do you think the impact of distributed apps blockchain-based distributed apps will have on the financial stack? So I think you have to play out the, the whole chessboard to answer that question. The chessboard three years ago was, and maybe this is just my ignorance, but as I saw it was fintech startups, financial services incumbents, and high-tech firms. So first it was the fintech startups are coming to get the financial services firms. And that didn't quite do very much. Um, you might have good vendors now, you might have a couple of new brands, but end of the day, fintech and financial services are, are merging into one. And then it was the high-tech firms are coming, right? So the Amazons, Facebooks, Googles are coming, and they're going to displace us <clears throat> in the relationship with customers and in the relationship with our data. When Microsoft and IBM host all financial services data on their proprietary blockchains. Um, you know, what leverage do financial services firms really have to their data? Um, and I think that's, that's still really important and relevant and hasn't played out yet. Um, but now there's the fourth area, the fourth player, which is the crypto economy, uh, developing from a Bitcoin wild west, um, to an ecosystem that looks like really the future of economics, um, start to finish, um, you know, and, and that's been a long journey coming. That's a transition from, uh, Bitcoin to blockchain, from blockchain to smart contracts, from smart contracts to now decentralized apps and from decentralized apps to now ICOs and from ICOs to now, uh, traditional venture funding, um, traditional money managers, Wall Street traders, and international funds and sovereign wealth funds all looking to invest in the crypto economy. Um, and the types of things that are built there uh, look wildly different and look like they really can't be replicated on the traditional stack on an 80s core processing system. Um, and so there's a real fundamental challenge to the incumbents but it's a long tail challenge. It's a black swan event that will happen. So there's so much to unpack in that last statement you made. And yeah, it's, it's like, where do you even begin? You know, it's like, do you think um, we'll end up in a world with multiple interoperable blockchains, um, putting stuff together 
or do you think that'll be just a few of them that will win out, like Ethereum, uh, winner-take-all dynamic, multipolar? What I, If you take what you said and we break it out into sort of science fiction, is it you were alluding to Accelerando, you know, potentially as a metaphor for what could potentially happen. What, what, how do you see this all playing out? Only Elon Musk knows the real answer. Um, and it's hard to talk about the future because you're going to be wrong with any pinpoint prediction. Um, but what I find useful is the science fiction thinking, the uh, kind of the creative artist thinking, because what you can do is you can find a point that's far out enough to say, yeah, that makes sense. There's, there's no way part of that's going to be wrong, right? That infrastructure is going to be something that will create a radically different world, and then you can back off from that, right? So if you imagine, if you just say 20 years from now, there's going to be an economy where all the data is going to be decentralized, where uh, instead of 50 billion smart agents, there may be uh, trillions of smart agents all existing on decentralized blockchain ecosystems, running uh, independent internal utility functions, uh, using tokens as ways to barter between machines at po- points of exchange. So imagine you're, um, you're a Deliveroo drone and uh, 10% of you die every quarter. So you have a little bit of an evolutionary algorithm to survive. Um, and you might have 100 interactions along the way of delivering your, your food to a human being. And 95 of those interactions will be with payment systems, with charging stations, with traffic systems, with smart cities. And then five of those might be with human beings. Um, and so it's, it's easy to imagine that world being entirely uh, composed of various decentralized uh, smart contract ecosystems um, that certainly some of them will develop themselves. Right. So in Accelerando, the idea is um, as we approach the singularity, certainly there are things that human do to try, uh, humans do that to try and to keep up. Um, but then uh, as artificial intelligence um, finds ways to manipulate the real economy, um, it can form corporations, it can spread, it can use evolutionary AI to um, build better versions of itself, and then it can root itself into our economy using human means. And um, if you look at a bunch of the Ethereum projects, you know, the decentralized autonomous organization is straight out of science fiction. Um, Much of the actual implementation that we saw was um, still very human-based, still has the problems of let's get these humans make a decision on a project, kind of like Nutmeg. Um, But once you have real AI in there, you can see that uh, creating various black holes in, in different markets. So you imagine that world 20 years from now, and then you say, what, what role does a banking core processing system built in the 1970s or 80s have in that world, right? Or what do the credit card rails do? Or what, what does a person that picks stocks or... Um, even an economist PhD that creates asset allocations, like what, what is their place? Are they really going to outcompete a fully open source, uh, decentralized economy where everybody owns a part of everything that they do and it's quantified? Um, and the answer to me is, well, yeah, the crypto economy is where we're going. Um, and I think, um, 
maybe the the interesting challenge is to figure out the way there because right now we're in a place with lots of question marks. And, and some of the, even though it might play out the way that science fiction has sort of um, articulated across several books, including Snow Crash, which I love, um, is it's kind of marrying that future with today's issues, right? And one of today's issues is token mania. You know, how, how do how do we take where we are today, get there, not kill the golden goose in the process through money loss um, and, and putting us in a little bit of a, of a winter um, as people lose value and then fear the technology. Walk us through what lessons do you think we need to be learning right now with this token mania slash bubble that we're feeling at the moment? What are the things that are still pending that we need to sort of solidify there, whether it be governance, whether it be uh, transparency, um, so that we can eventually get to what you've just described. So the ICO phenomenon is tremendous. It's awesome. And it's done some things that have been attempted before but never worked. So what crowdfunding tried to do um, and the types of promise that was inside of PayPal or inside of AngelList um, has finally come to fruition. And if you just peel away the part that is 80% Ponzi uh, Ponzi schemes and fraud and, and um, money trying to get out of difficult sovereign countries, um, if you peel that away, right, what's happened is that we've had a full collapse of all asset classes into software. So... Today, all equities are software, all fixed income is software, all venture investing is software, all high frequency trading is software, um, and it's all happening inside of the uh, mostly Ethereum blockchain uh, in initial coin offerings. I think the last number that we ran was about $2 billion this year. Uh, it's really kind of parabolic growth. Um, and so what you end up having is lots of participants in the in the public blockchain world, in the ICO ecosystem that think really differently. How do you have a venture investor that wants to get in at an early stage company and understands early stage risk compete against the day trader that runs technical charts on a token and then tries to manipulate the market up and down, up and down? And you have this kind of collapse of all these different approaches into one place, which I think is why it looks just like chaos. Um, so I think um, to your point, there's a lot of improvement and um, tools that can be built to make it better. Um, I think open source governance and best practices are starting to emerge. And I know that you know different parts of the ecosystem are trying to manufacture that. Um, the difficulty is that it's a global ecosystem and um, the regulations in Russia and China are fundamentally different from the regulations in Singapore and Zug, and those are fundamentally different from what the United States wants to do. So how do you align such disparate interests with investors who have such different styles? Um, and I think that you really do need a forest fire to happen um, in this ecosystem, meaning somebody really does get a target on their back from uh, the SEC before I think you see a real concerted effort to formalize governance because the money is so easy otherwise. Mm. But how, how do you foresee the governance actually taking place? Because as you alluded to, not only are there multiple governments that have different interests and different taxation and different benefits, different restrictions, 
on top of that, you're, that would seem to break the idea of a decentralized um, asset. And then on top of that, you have the interests of the people who are buying the token not being necessarily best stewarded by having lax governance, um, which could create huge losses for those people in the ways that maybe um, a, a highly assessed um, KYC process and uh, AML process would basically prevent those people from being able to participate in super early stage investments. Yeah, so uh, um, it's almost an impossible question, right? But to your last point, look at Filecoin, look at CoinList and Filecoin, right? Every single investor was a, an accredited investor in the United States. Uh, and 250 million or so went into that, I think is the largest uh, ICO this year. So the demand will be there, um, even when you put the regulation in place. And I think that some of these questions that the crypto economy is struggling with, uh, what is law? Who has the right to enforce it? Do we care about consumer protection? Shouldn't people just read our GitHub code? These are things that are have been addressed by humans for millennia, the role of law, the role of society, where you, um, how you decide to protect whom and how much. And that's different in different societies and different countries. So I wish there was more learning from um, the soft sciences by the, by the folks who are smart enough to, um, to build these systems. I think to the broader question of how does governance emerge, um, right now is just this is this kind of ball of everybody in one place doing different things and time is needed to spread out the um, the community and the ecosystem, right? So there are venture investors in the crypto economy and then there are traders and they have different interests and maybe they should be investing in different things. Um, and perhaps there are different you know, self-regulatory organizations that emerge to represent the different interests of these people. Um, you have best practices in coding and an open source, and these standards emerge over time and, and they take hold. Um, and I think, I think the community is trying to do this, but without a big shock, it's going to be difficult. Um, from a regulatory perspective, I don't see any path forward for global sovereigns to cooperate you know, I think there are going to be pockets of people that are aligned. Um, so you might have Singapore and the U.S. and maybe the U.K. aligned to a regulatory regime. Um, I think China is likely to do something that puts them forward, puts them first. Russia is going the same way. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting question of this kind of sovereign versus decentralized world. And we've seen this before, except it wasn't as difficult, right? So we saw this with music where the music labels were sort of the sovereign and then you had uh, BitTorrent and Napster and so on. Napster was the version of, you know, Coinbase and uh, BitTorrent kind of became the decentralized exchange. And so the decentralized ecosystem won. There's no way to shut any of that stuff down and all the labels lost and died. Um, sovereigns are more powerful than music labels. So it's, um, I think it's a matter of time to actually have that conflict and get the conclusions out forest fire as you put it excellent well i always like to wrap up with a little bit more about you and, and kind of what you enjoy and maybe since you've you've covered so many awesome topics and so many great um insights 
maybe we can start off with what, what do you read? And like, what, what are the top three books that you recommend? And what are the top three journals that you, you enjoy on a, on a weekly basis? So for books, I try to cycle through science fiction, um, regular fiction. Uh, if anything, I don't read biographies. I know everybody says we love to read biographies and it just doesn't work for me. Um, but in terms of science fiction, I would recommend people see how thought changes over time. So if you start with Dune and then go to Neuromancer and then go to Diamond Age and then try Accelerando, you'll see how people thought about the future. Um, and what's pretty consistent is that the details are wrong, but the direction is right. Um, and so, you know, that gives me a confidence about being able to say something about the future and create a vector that, that makes sense with our world. Um, I think with, with journals, um, I try to go directly to the, tr the industry trade mags, right? So going to New York Times and Forbes and Fortune, um, that's great. But if you're working in insurance, read uh, digital insurance and coverage. If you're working in wealth management or financial advice, go to wealthmanagement.com or financialplanning.com. If you're working in IoT, go, go to those trade mags because you need to know your niche, you need to, to know your community. Mm. Today we look back at slavery and we're appalled and shocked by it. What do you think people will look back on us 50 years from now and be shocked and appalled by? I don't think the answer is technology. I think, I think the answer is probably gender. Uh, I think where we are with how men and women are seen in the workplace and what the expectations are for men and women, how they're treated, um, and what's expected of them is something that's really rooted in outdated social norms. And the idea that paternity that Mark Zuckerberg takes two months paternity leave and he's a hero um, and women are expected to stay home with a kid for much longer but then not provided any resources especially in the United States to do that or that the finance and the tech and the real estate industries um, are still so old boys club and so egocentric I think people will look back at that and just see the the huge waste and potential that we um that we have in the economy by um not bringing women forward not putting them on boards uh not having them lead companies um as much as men today excellent well on that note thanks for joining us we've covered a lot of ground and really appreciate your thoughts and insights my pleasure thanks for listening if you enjoyed the podcast don't forget to subscribe on itunes and soundcloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show